0: I'm J.G. Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American empire and national security state operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War this episode of Parallax views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of parallax views on patreon.com/ parallax views and those supporters get a producer's credit shout out on each and every edition of the show. So producers credit shout outs to mark. Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Grass, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, emilia Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project. M E E R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners on this edition of the program. We're going to be talking with James C. Zimring, author of What Science Is and How It Really Works, and more recently, the book we'll be talking about on this edition of the show, Partial Truths, How Fractions Distort Our Thinking. And as you'll see in the course of our conversation, we're not talking about fractional thinking in relation to math classes or anything like that, but rather how we use fractions in everyday life and how it relates to things like the Dungeons and Dragons, Moral Panic of the 1980s, and the Iraq War. It's a fascinating conversation, so let's get right to it with James C. Zimring, author of Partial Truths. How Fractions Distort Our Thinking. Welcome to Parallax Views. I guess I'm very interested to be speaking with James C. Zimring, author of Partial Truths, How Fractions Distort Our Thinking. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. And thanks so much for having me on.
0: So, I want to talk about Partial Truths and also your previous book, uh, What is Science and How It Really Works. Uh, But before we do that, I I want to drill down into this title, um, Hmm. Partial Truths, and specifically that subtitle, uh, How Fractions Distort Our Thinking, because... I don't want people to go into this thinking, is this guy saying that fractions are like the worst thing in the world? Or because you're talking about fractions in a very specific way, and it sort of has to do with psychology and also just how we use fractions outside of you know math classrooms and outside of academia. We we actually use fractions in a very prosaic way uh, every day. So maybe you could talk about what you mean by fractions uh, within the title.
1: Yeah, thanks for allowing me to talk about that because this is not a math book. And it's funny because some people who have read it, most people are have said, thank goodness this isn't a math book. Some people are disappointed. But math is a language and fractions are just a way of representing uh, a group of things. And of those things, how many have a certain property? And this book is using fractions as an analogy, as a lens to describe cognitive processes that humans engage in consciously and unconsciously as an instrument to understand them better. But I am not saying our heads are like little calculators, that our neurons have you know, fractions going back and forth, that this is how we think. It, it's not how we think, but it can be used to understand how we think. And that's the basis of, of, this, of the title there.
0: Now, if we could, I was telling you before the show that I was familiar with your other book, uh, What is Science? And how it works. Uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about that book and, and sort of um, what you discuss in that book. I know uh, you've discussed things like science and social construction. So let's, let's dig into that a little bit because I think it'll relate to this uh, book as well.
1: Yeah. And this book kind of came out of a part of that book I wanted to expand on further. So thanks for tying those things in. So first of all, full disclosure, I'm a practicing professional scientist That's what I do most of the time, but I also teach critical thinking to science students. And what, you know, science as an entity has gone up and down in its reputation in our society and in its credibility. And there's an awful lot of debate about what scientific claims are and should we take them seriously? And if science is a better way of understanding nature than other ways, how come science sometimes gets things wrong? And when it does, sometimes it gets things tragically wrong. And if science has gotten things wrong in the past, why should we pay any attention to it in the future? And the label of science puts a societal uh, uh, tattoo on something things. From some people's point of view, it means that you should believe them more. From other people's point of view, it makes them suspicious. And then there's this whole range of pseudoscience, which is uh, people who try to represent their claims in the clothing of science without having the substance of it. And so this question of what is this thing, science, and how should we treat it, is important societally. It's important uh, academically. It's important across the board. And what is Sobering is that after 2,400 years of recorded human thought and an awful lot of scholarship, people cannot precisely define science where you can point this is science and that is not science. But you can unpack certain characteristics of science, very distinct methodologies of science that are different from normal human thinking and are suited to understanding natural phenomena, right? That's what science is meant to do and that's what it's good at. And when you focus in on that, it gives scientific knowledge claims a very different character, a very different truth quality, not with a capital T, and it'll inform you how much confidence should you put in scientific claims and and why are those claims being made? And, And I think, you know, this issue of scientific literacy is a big issue in in um, teaching circles and in, in public debates but the term scientific literacy is often meant to imply of the things that scientists currently say are true how many of them do you understand and i think that that's a little misguided in this context what i think we need to be asking is how do you understand the reason for scientific knowledge claims when a scientist says i know something what does that mean that's the scientific literacy we need to address. So that's what I wrote the book uh to cover. And it's a broad topic and, and and quite a rich area of um of you know scholarship.
0: So then in regards to partial truths, let's talk a little bit more about uh what we mean by uh fractions and, and how they distort our thinking. Because as I said earlier, I think people think of fractions, they think of um you know, the, the math classroom, but really, you know, you could go back to um, I don't know, ancient people breaking up a a fruit and and giving (laughs) it to different people. And they're, you know, they're they're doing fractions, you know, they're dividing things up.
1: Yeah. All of us do fractions all the time and our common language. If I said, well, you know, that's a one in a million chance of happening. Uh, That's a fraction, right? We, we, we talk about fractions. Everyone knows what it means. If I say, I want a quarter of that apple so what's so exciting about that? Well, nothing, but what is interesting is that, you know, our brains are, are bombarded with information, unbelievable amounts of sensory input. And if we were to try to swallow the world whole, we would just be confused. You know, we wouldn't be able to even take a step forward. So our, our sensory apparatus filters so that we only perceive a fraction of the information out there and of that information we only notice a fraction of that and of that information we only remember a fraction of that and then we distort it in our in our brains based upon our pre-existing beliefs to twist the fraction and then the information enters our thinking and so if you consider how human minds tend to fractionate information it can explain a lot about how our beliefs form sometimes in line with the external world, sometimes not in line with the external world. And it can also explain why rational, good-intended people can look at the same world and see very different things. I mean, we're, we're, in, a, we're in the season when the Supreme Court's about to be coming out with a lot of very important decisions. And here you have nine extremely smart extremely educated people looking at the same briefs the same arguments the same information the same society and coming to wildly different conclusions now you may have a cynical view that they're just instruments of some political apparatus or agenda and they're trying to manipulate the system for some reason but i don't think you need to uh, raise that explanation because very reasonable people look at the world differently and see different things and then you have to ask yourself well wait a minute if humans are rational And I'm not willing to fully stipulate that, but let's just say that they are. If humans are rational, how can we all look at the same world and see different stuff? And an explanation for that is that the way our minds fractionate the information allows us or causes us to come to these different conclusions. And we can go into specific examples and and maybe we should because it really illustrates what's going on. Once um, you start to understand that your mind does this, and by the way, Because human minds do this naturally, unconsciously, it means that they are also susceptible to disingenuous manipulation from outside sources, which understand how human minds fractionate things. Once you start to see this somewhere, then you can see it everywhere. And once you get into the, um, have a metacognitive habit of starting to ask the question, Is the information I'm being given have the underlying form of a fraction? If it does, what parts of the fraction am I being exposed to? It can really change not just your view, it can change the way you understand other views. And I think that that is really an essential goal of the book to explain that.
0: So since we were talking about specific examples, one of the ones that I really like that you bring up in the book is... uh this whole panic back in, you know, I would say the eighties around dungeons and dragons and people may not know this, but it was sort of part of a wider panic, you know, this thing called the satanic panic. Um, yep. and people were yeah. really worried about D and because of, a, uh, I I think it was the kid that you, you mentioned. It was, a uh, James Dallas Egbert, uh, disappeared. And, uh, this yep. caused a whole panic and it, it was on 60 minutes and yep. all these other things. And I think it's important to talk about this specific case because, uh, I'm in Florida right now. So uh, we have the governor DeSantis here uh, going on about, uh, oh, they're, they're you know, they're grooming our kids, the liberals. And it, it worries me because I feel like there's like this weird sort of repeat of the satanic panic that could be going on with, you know, people saying things like that, you know, this sort of paranoid worldview coming to the uh, surface and bubbling up into something that could get, you know, into like a mass hysteria. So why the, why the D&D example? How does that uh, fall into this issue of uh, how we fractionate our thinking?
1: Yeah, so thanks for bringing this, this example up. Let me unpack it for you and also say that not only, you're correct, not only is it happening again, uh, or has, has been happening actually continuously since, but it also happened many times before. right so so this is something that humans do so james dallas Egbert was a 16 year old prodigy who was attending michigan state university and he was a, a troubled kid and he was struggling uh with a number of issues uh which adolescents often do and and also some some rather serious ones and he loved to play dungeons and dragons which full disclosure? So did I around that age. And this this game was was weird to parents. They didn't understand it. First of all, it was a game with no board, right? This is a generation that grew up with Monopoly and Life. What do you mean there's no board? It's fantasy role playing. It has um, demonic and kind of you know mystical qualities to it that seem occult. And the kids go off in their own worlds and and, and play it in, in that kind of. Stuff with my mom's generation, everyone was worried that you know Elvis Presley was gyrating his hips on the Ed Sullivan show. With my generation, it was Dungeons and Dragons. And what happened with Dallas is he disappeared from his dorm room and uh, left a, a note that seemed like a suicide note, but it wasn't. It wasn't obvious that that was the case. And there were other suspicious things about his disappearance. And they decided that he had probably committed suicide, but they weren't sure. And once the detectives that the parents hired started digging into his life, they realized that he was a fanatic player of Dungeons and Dragons, not just at a table with dice and a bunch of Cheetos and, you know, and flat Coke, but he and his friends would go into the steam tunnels under Michigan State University and like live action role play. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons. And the hypothesis that one of the uh, investigators came up with is that the game had gotten out of hand someone had killed someone else or he had rolled a critical hit himself and committed suicide or something like that and they launched this um, search of the steam tunnels under this idea now this idea got into the media as you as you pointed out and newspapers were publishing headlines you know kid you know missing on adventure game you know satanic game you know results in in death etc And it was on 60 Minutes later on because of some other things that happened. And there was this huge manhunt for Dallas. Now, ultimately, they found Dallas. He was in Morgan City, Louisiana, over 1,000 miles away from East Lansing. He had basically run away from college because he was really having some some troubles. And the reason they found him, by the way, is not good detective work. He called them uh, because he was kind of destitute. And he's like, help, please come get me. And they went and got him. And they took him back to his parents' But what happened is this kind of took the nation's eye on it. I remember hearing the story as a kid, by the way, and I remember believing it. I'm like, oh, yeah, there was a kid at Michigan State University he killed himself because, you know, you hear the story, but you never hear the follow up that happens. Now, what happened then is that over the next five years or so, it was noticed that there were around 28 murders or suicides carried out by kids that played Dungeons and Dragons. And this idea got into people's heads. Oh, gosh, this is a dangerous game. As you said, 60 Minutes did this long segment on it. They had Gary Gygax on, one of the creators of the game, and they made it really seem like this game was dangerous and we need to be careful. Uh, uh, organizations popped up uh, bad. There were these these parents against Dungeons and Dragons. Some um, prisons tried to outlaw the game amongst inmates, and there was all this, this stuff that went on. And... What um, we have to remember here is that this is not a bad thing to notice stuff like this, right? I mean, there are dangerous things out there and they might cause problems and we should investigate them. So, wow, 28 murders or suicides. That sounds like a really big deal. That's really dangerous. Let's look at it. Well, so what was happening is that by that time, by 1985, over 3 million teenagers were playing Dungeons and Dragons. That's how popular the game had become. So when you say 28 kids killed themselves, that's an, that's an absolute number. That's, but, but the rate is a fraction. So 28 kids killed themselves out of 3 million kids playing, right? So that's the the rate of suicide. Now, if you look at the rate of suicide amongst adolescents anyway, out of 3 million kids playing, there should have been several hundred suicides. This is just the background rate of kids committing suicide. So actually of the kids that play Dungeons and Dragons, there was a lower rate of suicide than there was of the kids that didn't play. And so this is an example of two things. First of all, you're not taking the denominator into account, right? This is something politicians do constantly, right? So every election cycle, you'll hear someone say, I created more jobs than have ever been made, created in America. My opponent, under him, the economy lost more money than it's ever lost in the history of America. Well, yeah, because the economy is bigger than it's ever been, and there's more jobs than there's ever been, right? You're, you're looking at just the top of a fraction, and so people purposely distort these numbers. But in this case, it was what's called uh, the availability heuristic. People notice things, and they, they focus on them, and they don't take the rest of the, um, the circumstances into account. Now, this happens um, moving forward when um, there were the Columbine shooting happened and other shootings have happened. Uh, they looked at the kids and said, "Wow, they're playing violent video games and listening to rock and roll music." I,
0: I was gonna say it's funny. Uh, I, you know, I was growing up like after Columbine, but I listened to like, uh, you know, these they're called like industrial rock bands, so like Nine Inch Nails and, yep. and bands like KMFDM. And it was bands like Kim FdM that people started blaming for Columbine because I guess the two kids listened to him. And I, it just, it was always bizarre to me because I, I thought to myself, well, you know, just because they listened to them, that doesn't mean that this is the cause of the, you know, uh, the, the shootings. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but it might be right. I mean, it, it might be. So yeah, you, and yeah, I, and I think Gygax actually said that in the 60 minutes interview that you referenced where he's like, well, if there were 12 kids that, Killed themselves. I want to look at the one factor. The problem is I would do it in a scientific way, and this that's is right. done unscientifically. Yeah.
1: Actually, what and what was really ironic what he said is this is a witch hunt, right? Well, there's witches and dungeons and dragons, so it's kind of kind of funny. But no, you're right. And so, so the the way you'd ask the question, right, is you look at kids that listen to this type of music and play these violent video games, and you look at the rate at which they do things, and you ask, it's a fraction, it's a rate question. And when I say it, that's been going on since. You know, if you go back to um <laughs> the 1920s um is a, a famous murder leopold and Loeb, where these two uh, kids in chicago genius level kids who were yeah, basically they
0: were the uh, the thrill killers that um hitchcock yeah. made a movie about them uh, rope yeah. yeah
1: they're basically sociopaths and they decided that they were nietzschean uber and that they were going to kill a kid and get away with it and so they found this c- c- uh, poor kid uh, robert banks who happened to be one of their cousins and got him into a car and killed him. All right. Now, um, once it became once it came, they were caught. They were not Uber mentioned. And once it came out, what this horrible thing that they had done, if you read the newspapers at the time, there's editorials about how the reason this is happening is because kids are listening to jazz music right? So this is, you know, they're listening to jazz and we're educating them too much. So basically, anytime you see one thing associated with another thing, you can say, hey, maybe one thing is causing another, but there's ways to figure it out. And by the way, this, so you may or may not want to talk about this. This is the same reason why so many people believe measles vaccine causes autism. Um, it's a very similar kind of thing. And again, I, I'm not, I don't want to mock people who believe this because it is it is very common sense thinking that they should believe it but once you unpack the evidence in a more scientific way there's nothing there
0: yeah real, real quick in that regard it's interesting because m- maybe i use an availability of an availability heuristic in a different direction than maybe people that uh would blame dungeons and dragons or, or blame heavy metal or judas priest for the kid dying backwards masking like to me it's i look at all these instances of moral panics so when i hear something new where people are like oh the next thing that's going to destroy western civilization and children is trans uh transgenders yeah i, I look at that and i just say to myself well look at all these other moral panics uh why should i believe this is any different uh so th- that's almost its own heuristic it
1: is actually it so so you know the availability it, you're right, <laughs> although you know heuristics are just rule of thumb uh, thinking, and so basically what you're engaging in is inductive inference you're saying well if this has happened always in the past isn't it reasonable to say this is still happening now now. Um, if you were drinking scotch in Edinburgh with David Hume, he'd put his hand around your shoulder and say, no, actually, sorry, that reasoning is really stupid. But the truth of the matter is, is that humans use it. It's extremely useful, which is why we use it. And so I wouldn't, yeah, it's not really so much a heuristic as just an inductive inference that if you see something happening over and over again, it's reasonable to question whether it's happening now. Right, now, that having been said, I think it it, it would be fair if in the 19 19- Uh, late 1920s early 1930s you were a parent living in berlin and you said wow this whole hitler youth ideology this is really dangerous this is i don't think this is good for our kids i think you you would be right right so it's it's not as though there aren't things that we need to be mindful of but the question is just seeing one instance of something happening one association is not, I heard the same thing that you heard about this This um, shooting may have been because someone was trans. Well, so what? I mean, what you have to ask is what percentage of people who do shootings are of that disposition versus those that don't? This is a, there's a very easy way to ask these questions. The problem is people don't ask them that way. They just go on this reflex feeling, and then that becomes a matter of unassailable fact in their mind. Because again, they're looking at the top of a fraction. They're not taking the denominator into account. And it's, it's a very simple concept, right? But um, there's a very funny story I love to tell people. And when I tell them, they don't believe me. But there was a, there was a time in the 1980s when a, a, so A&W Root Beer, uh, which also is a restaurant chain, was trying to unseat the quarter pounder as the dominant hamburger in America, right? And so they, they created a hamburger that was, that was awesome. It was more meat, it was cheaper and it did better in blind taste tests and and it was a third it was a it was a third pound hamburger right just what Americans need a third pound hamburger and they when they when they released it um it it did not sell well at all it did, it did terribly and after the fact they they did a market analysis and they realized that people didn't want to pay for this hamburger because they thought it was less meat because a third Sounds like it's less than a fourth, because three is less than four. Now you know people laugh and go, "Oh, ha ha!" I can never do something like that, but we do. It's it's reflexive thinking, and so you know these types of things crop up again and again and again. But but that was the um, James Dallas Egbert story, and very sadly, um, he wound up committing suicide a year after he was returned to his parents, and this was a, a, a mentally ill kid. And that's all, you know?
0: Yeah. And, and the reason I had mentioned that sometimes I use sort of inductive reasoning sometimes to dismiss what I see as like being a panic is just because I, I think it drives home the point that we, we all use um, forms of reasoning like this, whether we realize it or not. Um, and it's not always bad to use these forms of reasoning.
1: Actually, it's essential, right? So I wasn't meaning to pick on, pick on. all of us, do it all the time. And if we didn't, we, we, we'd be dead. We'd be dead. But, the, but you know, the, the point is is that um, it is reasonable when a serious issue comes up, or there's a period of um, disagreement or confrontation or debate, to pause and engage in a reflective process where we take a lot of the tools that science and other methods have taught us to remedy the errors that sometimes humans make and we apply those tools in a thoughtful way before we go back to our reflexive thinking. It's that that we do too infrequently, right? And, and that that is really a, a problematic. And, and I will say to you, this, this issue that we kind of touched on at the beginning of the interview, the suspicion against science, science says some things that are really against common sense. Because one of the things that science does as part of its methods is it notices when humans take make errors tend to make errors and it develops methodologies to try to mitigate those errors but when you tell someone something that is not that goes against common sense and you don't have the um tools or the language to explain to them you know what you know why that's the case they're going to think that you're lying to them which is why this 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 deeper understanding how fractions affect our thinking, how scientific methodologies are different, how human cognition works is, is really an essential component of dialogue.
0: So we're, we're going to move on from the D&D thing, but I thought that was a, a really interesting segment of the book since I think a lot about, you know, I've always found things like mass hysterias and moral panics very yeah. interesting. And in a way, <laughs> your book sort of deals with like uh, ways in which we can avoid those things. <laughs>
1: I'd like to think we can avoid those things. The history of humanity suggests we can't always avoid them. But if we can avoid a couple of them, that would be nice.
0: So there was another really interesting section of your book, and I haven't got a chance to hear you talk about it much in in other interviews, but I really enjoyed the chapter on it. And that's uh, the Iraq War, which, you know, I lived through the Iraq War, and I was one of those people that was like, oh, I don't like this. And I I think this is a very bad idea. Uh, I was in my teens at the time. So What led you to include a section on the Iraq war and how does it figure into the way in which fractions distort our thinking?
1: So one of the biggest drivers of human misunderstanding is what's called confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is a very odd way of processing the world if you think of humans as objective and rational beings. And in a nutshell, What confirmation bias is, is that once you believe something, you will filter information that you encounter such that you notice or put heavy weight on things that confirm your existing belief and you discount or ignore things that go against your belief. So in in some ways, it's not that seeing is believing, it's that believing is seeing now, now, obviously, there are limits to this, right? If I, if I tell you the sky is green and you go out and look, you're probably going to disagree with me. But here I'm talking about how you, you process information. And there was a, um, a great study done, it's relevant to our current political circumstances, where they took a, a bunch of students in a cognitive psychology department at a university, and they had them take surveys and they, they separated them into the groups that believe the capital punishment is a deterrent. Um, and those that thought that it wasn't, you know, against murder. And then they gave the groups uh, scientific studies about whether this might be the case or not, looking at, you know, the rates of murder before or after capital punishment is put in place in a state or the rates of murder in states next to each other. One has capital punishment, one doesn't. And what they observed was, with the same information, right, with the same data, both groups became more strongly convinced of their existing position. And when they drilled down psychologically in the why that was happening is that both groups took the studies that supported their pre-existing view and weighed them very heavily. And and the groups that they would take the studies that went against their existing view and weighed them very poorly. And this wasn't an artifact of the studies being of different quality because when they switched the outcomes of the studies, they they got the the same effect. So why am I talking about confirmation bias? The run-up to the war in Iraq could arguably described as one Massive societal confirmation bias. Now, I think it's fair to say that the government at that time was a mixture of minds, some of whom had um, motivations that were um, ideological around democratizing the world and bringing freedom to people, some of whom were focused on protecting the United States from another 9-11-like attack. That was their goal. And some of whom probably had somewhat less admirable interests of either the military industrial complex or the oil industry in mind. And these were all members of the same administration. So we're not talking about a single cognition here. What happened here is that the vice president, Dick Cheney, thought that President Bush, W. Bush, had the authority to go to war unilaterally on his own, and he he should do so. President Bush felt otherwise. He felt that he needed to get the approval of the United Nations, of the Congress, the United States of America, and of the people. And therefore, he put forward an argument based on evidence. This is the evidence that justifies the invasion. And when you make an evidentiary argument, confirmation bias right, comes to play. So they had access to massive amounts of information. And the argument to go to war, there were there were two components of it. The first was Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. And if we don't go in and disarm him, he will do something horrible to us or others. Right. The second part of the claim was that Saddam Hussein was responsible for the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center.
0: And he had connections to Al-Qaeda. Right. Correct. That's
1: right. Now, that idea had essentially it's not that there was no evidence to support it. It's that there was massive amounts of evidence to suggest that that it wasn't the case, that that when when um, when the American and, and allies, you know, raided the Taliban strongholds in Afghanistan, they got massive amounts, caches of information, documents, correspondence, everything the Taliban was up to. And there was there was no evidence that there had been any correspondence whatsoever with Iraq. What they did have is a testimony f- from someone that a, a couple. Um, Taliban people had gone, you know, to Iraq at one point, maybe to learn some bomb-making skills. And there were a few suggestions about, you know, this guy had a, a meeting in Prague and and whatnot. And and it, it came out later that, by the way, a lot of this testimony was just, you know, people who had been tortured by foreign intelligence services. They were saying whatever they would to get out of it. But the the um, the government uh, latched onto those those things and presented those scant bits of data. And those alone, ignoring right everything else, and so now why is it, So the reason again, the fraction analogy comes into play. Is that if you have a a fraction where you know the amount of evidence is is one out of you know a billion, and you present only the one, you're ignoring the denominator. Now someone might say to you, "Wait a minute, who cares? The stakes are so high here." If there's even the chance, right, we don't I think Condole- Condoleezza Rice said we don't want the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud. That was the, the narrative that they got across. If there's even a chance of it, why wouldn't you pay attention to that? And and here, by the way, in my view, now we have we have the benefit of hindsight here. There wasn't even a, there wasn't even a chance of it. it was absolutely fabricated nonsense. Now, to be fair, by the way, there was very good reason to suspect not based on evidence that Saddam Hussein did have weapons of mass destruction. He had had them previously. He had purposely hid them from United Nations inspectors. He had used them not only on on Iranian troops, but on his own people. I'm not saying Saddam Hussein wasn't a horrible, evil human. I'm I'm not saying that the the decision was or wasn't correct. That's a, a geopolitical debate. I'm saying that the evidence that was put forward simply didn't justify it. And when, when you talk, listen to quotes from, and this, by the way, most of this information comes from a great book on the topic by Robert Draper, who really drilled down and had a lot of interviews with CIA agents and other people. You basically find that, that um, a, a number of members of the administration kept going to the CIA and saying, where's the evidence of the weapons and the link? And the CIA said, there is none. And they said, no, 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 go find some evidence. Where is it? And they said, there is none and they said that's not acceptable to us go find it George Tenet where's the evidence and basically they packaged it what did, what did they present us with they presented us with um well in Niger um the Iraqis tried to buy some uranium well that was completely debunked it, that was not the case and by the way they knew that wasn't the case when when they presented it mean, right? they said that well they're trying to get um they have these mobile Colin Powell testified in front of the United Nations They have mobile fermentation factories to make biological weapons. There was no evidence of that, even after the fact. And it's very sad because Colin Powell, who was probably the most respected member of the administration and deserves our respect for a life devoted to serving the nation at the very highest levels, said in retrospect, we just didn't really drill down on the data enough. We took what we were giving and we ran with it. And so now what we're talking about is a situation where we went to war, our allies went to war. Many soldiers were killed. Many Iraqi nationals were killed. The whole, the whole you know, this, this thing occurred. And none of the justifications that supported the war held up. And at the time, it was just scant evidence. But I am willing to concede, by the way, of course, who am I? But in my point of view, most of the people in the administration really believed there were weapons of mass destruction they really believed that there was al-qaeda al- and how could they believe that because their confirmation bias was fractionating the information so they were focusing on the small amount of stuff that supported their opinion and discounting everything else and i i comment on this that again because humans are so consistent there is a, a record of the ancient uh, greek historian thucydides complaining during the peloponnesian war that they were doing this in their march to war at the time. So maybe this is hopeless. <laughs> that We're not going to learn our lesson, but we do need to pay very careful attention to that. It.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I was thinking too about um, the Vietnam War while reading uh, that specific section of the book. And there's a book I always like to reference on my show. It's called um, The Best and the Brightest by uh, David Halberstam. And that the title is kind of ironic because what it's asking is, well, how did the best and the brightest of the country get us into the, the Vietnam War, <laughs> and why did it end the way it did? Um, so that, that's another thing I wanted to get into was, I think a lot of people think that, oh, well, th- this person or this institution is saying something, therefore they, they must be right because they're the best and the brightest, um, and that appeal to authority is not always. I would say it's inherently not scientific. Uh, so. Why do we end up getting sort of pulled into that appeal by authority?
1: Well, I mean, none of us understand, uh, none of us are experts in much, except our very small microcosm of the world, right? So I'm a professional molecular biologist. And if someone, I I read stuff in the New York Times all the time that drives me out of my mind, you know, because they'll say, well, I shouldn't pick on the New York Times. Papers in general will say things like, Oh, yeah, they were sequencing DNA and they realized one of the amino acids was wrong. Well, DNA is made of nucleic acids, not amino acids. And I notice these things because I'm a scientist. But when I read the economics section, I wouldn't know, you know, I, I can read. So all of us have to rely on experts and authorities. But there are criteria, right, for an authority to be legitimate and 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 to 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 listen to and some of the criteria are weird one of the criteria is the the authority has to actually have material form okay what does that mean what does that mean that means that if you say oh i heard from a guy sometime uh, once upon a time or i read somewhere blah 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 well you're not referring to an authority you're referring to something which may or may not have ever existed. When Donald Trump was asked why he was taking hydroxychloroquine, he said, I hear a lot of good things about it. You know, people are saying it's great. Well, that's, kind of, that's sort of an appeal to authority, but there, there is no there there, right? But then even in the other criteria is that the authority has to be disinterested. They can't be conflicted in the process. And, and, they, and by the way, they have to actually be an expert. And if you can fulfill those criteria, it's reasonable. To listen to authorities, I think we find ourselves today in an um, authority-rich domain with Inappropriate authorities. Think tanks have emerged as this massive instrument where they are set up by groups with an agenda. They're staffed by groups with an agenda. They're funded by groups with an agenda. And then they issue scholarly work. You can't see air quotes on a podcast, but scholarly work that then is used right by the highest courts in the land to justify argument X or Y. I'm going to pick on the Heritage Foundation for a minute. Which is a conservative think tank, think tank, and I'm not trying to pick on conservatives, but the Heritage Foundation did something which is a great example of a fraction error that we're talking about, and they issued they they wrote a piece recently about how about diversity, equity, and inclusion offices in universities, right? So most universities now have offices of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and their goal is to have. Racial, socioeconomical diversity and inclusion in, in higher education. Now, you may agree or disagree with that goal. What the Heritage Foundation claimed was that uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion offices at universities were broadly anti Semitic. Okay, that's a pretty serious claim. And, and if that is the case, we should think about it carefully. What was the basis of that claim by this scholarly work by a think tank? Well, they got the. Um, they looked at the uh, tweets of uh, several hundred, of seven hundred, more than seven hundred uh, DEI um, professionals, and they counted up the number of tweets that were against Israel versus those that were against China and they said there's a lot more of them that are against Israel. Now first of all I have to say that being against Israeli foreign policy is not the same thing as being anti-semitic. The majority of Jewish Americans disapprove of Israel's foreign policy in some way. But let's just set that aside. They commented on how many more tweets there were that were anti-Israeli versus anti-China. Now now listen to that carefully. They commented on how many more tweets there were. They did not reveal how many tweeters there were there might have been one you know wildly anti-israeli person tweeting all the time and nobody else and the way they presented the information we can't we can't tell these are professional scholars they know how to present information in a certain way and so when you talk about going to authorities an authority has to be honest An authority has to be disinterested and they need to really know what they're talking about. So I, I think we should use authorities. I think we need authorities. None of us knows everything, but the authorities have to be vetted for these, these criteria of legitimacy.
0: Yeah. I think it gets tricky because I think sometimes when people say, um, Oh, just, just trust them because they're an authority on this. I don't think that's necessarily good reasoning, but then you can go in the exact opposite direction where people will say, well, because they're an authority and you know, this institution has a history of making mistakes, I don't trust anything anymore. Yes. And you know, I think we have to find a way to thread that needle, so to speak. Well,
1: well, there is, there is a problem. I talk about this a lot in, in my, my science book. There is a problem on expectations of perfection, right? So there is this idea that, well, this person or this field or this group got something wrong once. Therefore, I should never listen to them again. Again, you're, you're ignoring a fraction, right? So if if there was a group, if there was a predictive algorithm that uh, was correct 90% of the time and your choice was using that or randomly guessing, what would you use? I would say you should use the algorithm that's correct 90% of the time, but there will be a lot of instances of it being wrong. Right now, if you listen to the rhetoric uh, around uh, global warming debates, Uh, previously around tobacco use debates, and also uh, flat earthers, to be honest, what they are, they are focusing myopically on a single contradiction. They say that, well, yes, there's a lot of evidence that human activity is making the earth warmer, but it hasn't been proven to a scientific certainty, so we should do nothing about it. Um, Yes, there's a lot of evidence that smoking might cause cancer, but you know what? It hasn't been proven to a scientific certainty, so we shouldn't legislate against it. Sure, yes, there's a lot of evidence that maybe, maybe the earth goes around the sun, but I don't know, there's an inconsistency somewhere. I don't think we should believe it. You talk about parents being victimized, the parents of the Sandy Hook um, shooting. Um, A lot of conspiracy theorists have said, well, in this one interview with this one father, he had this nervous laugh. And that's not consistent with a grieving father. Therefore, all of them must be actors. The whole thing was made up and no kids died. And what you're doing there is you're saying, unless something is 100% perfect in every regard, I refuse to believe it. And if that's your stance, you, you shouldn't believe anything. And it's this, this idea of perfection is really problematic. And by the way, that's why it's so damaging when science enthusiasts claim science is the truth And scientists sometimes accept that label because if science is the truth, it can't be wrong. And it clearly is sometimes. So this hyperbole is really problematic.
0: So there were just a few more things I wanted to cover. And I I don't think we talked about it before the show, but I I found it interesting that you had a chapter on uh, criminal justice. And it was interesting to me because you talked about uh, big data and how that distorts our thinking. And it's very interesting because... I don't know if you remember, but a few years back, there was a book that came out called Weapons of Math Destruction by a woman by the name of <laughs> Kathy O'Neill. And I remember mm. people were flipping out about this book, saying she's saying that math uh, isn't true and that it causes racism. That's not what the book was saying. It was just talking about you know how big data uh, fosters inequity in our society. But people mm. just looked at the title and, and just went insane. So I was really interested in talking about that chapter on big data and how that can distort things.
1: Yeah, so, uh, and and, you know, by the way, I've learned since I've been uh, uh, writing that people do judge a book by its cover, often exclusively, and so my sympathies uh, to her. So this chapter goes into this idea that yes, humans are biased, Uh, we all know this, maybe not with bad intent, we're just, we're just biased creatures. And therefore, if we use big data algorithms that are you know, silicon-based processing, we can eliminate the bias because there's no human there. There's just a computer crunching through data. And uh, what I was focusing on here, and by the way, this gets into very deep uh, debates about institutional racism and whether or not it exists in our, our society or not. And I want to unpack that those words a bit because these are very charged terms. Let's just give the the less sinister scenario. Let's say that, let's stipulate, and by the way, I I'm not saying this is the case, but let's stipulate that no humans here are racist, that there are there are no humans that judge other races um, less than their own. And that we are going to define institutional racism as. Being treated differently under the law, just in case you happen to be a certain race, right? Not because you're a certain race, not, not unintentionally, but just in case you happen to be of one race, you were treated differently under the law than an, in another race. And so what I was looking at was the Cal gang database, which is a database in California, which collects big data on crime, And the the, by the way, these big data algorithms are quite uh, good at predicting the time of day a crime is most likely to occur, what part of the city it's most likely to occur in, what the characteristics of the perpetrators and the victims are most likely to be, if there's something stolen, you know what what type of car, what color, and they can predict uh, fairly uh, well trends of crime and therefore deploy police resources in that regard. I mean, this is nothing new, right? Police have always known some parts of town are more dangerous than others. It's just that this is a more advanced way of doing it with, with a big data algorithm. Well, the Cal Gang database basically says if you're in this database, um, you are, are are tagged with this label. Now, in the United States, um, under the, the Fourth Amendment, we have the right not to be uh, you know, detained without probable cause. We can't be arrested without probable cause but we can be stopped and questioned and even frisked just if we have reasonable suspicion, if the police have reasonable suspicion, what's reasonable suspicion. Well, <laughs> the word reasonable is something juries debate, but um, if they look at you and they think it's likely that something, you know, untoward is going on. Now the Cal gang database has a number of criteria to be on it. One of the criteria is that you um, associate with people known to be in gangs. And the other is that you frequent frequent areas where gang activity is high. Now, let's just uh, say that you live in a, a housing complex in a part of town where there are a lot of gangs. Well, you frequent an area where, where gang activity is high because you live there. And you're gonna associate with gang members because maybe your neighbors are, the, you know, you're walking down the street. So that means that just by living in a gang-ridden area, you are automatically on this database and automatically on the database, it fulfills the criteria of a reasonable suspicion. Which means that just because you live in that part of town, you have lower Fourth Amendment rights than people who don't live in a town like that. To show how absurd it is, by the way, at one point it was pointed out that there were two infants on the Cal gang database, right? So now, setting aside that issue, it is a a regrettable reality, and this is just a demographic truth, that people who live in gang-ridden areas tend on average to be minorities, or, or a higher uh, extent, the minority than other parts of the world, right? Other parts of the country. And so what that means is that by association, if you are a minority, you are more likely to live in a part of a town where you have a priori lower fourth amendment rights than other people, which means you are being treated differently under the law, just in case you happen to be that race. Again, it doesn't have to be because you're, you're that race, right? So the, the the way you use big data does not cleanse it of bias. Actually, it amplifies a bias in this case, just like when we talked earlier about confirmation bias, right? So if confirmation bias is that if you believe in something, you look more for it and you don't look for the things you don't believe in, well, basically we're in a situation where the, the police are looking more for criminal activity and contraband. As a, by an algorithm that applies to uh, people of minority status, there's also this new technology that's coming out, or relatively new, called ShotSpotter, which is a they put cam they put um, microphones all around neighborhoods, and they can not only pick up what the the computer decides is a gunshot, but they can localize it. They can say, hey, a gun was fired on this block at this time. Well, these uh, technology is wildly inaccurate. Which means that if someone slams a door really hard or, you know, something goes off, it'll deploy the police, they'll come in, and now, again, the Fourth Amendment rights are really low. And, and, you know, because resources are limited, of course, they deploy this technology in areas that are of lower socioeconomic status where crime is very high, which just exacerbates the problem. So that's the type of big data Uh, use that i'm talking about and i think the important point here is that we can acknowledge that this is treating people differently under the law without any intent to be racist per se again i'm not saying that intent is or isn't there i'm just saying that the technology and the big data manifest in that way regardless of intent
0: so the the last two things i wanted to cover uh, first I, i wanted to get into this because i i did not expect it to come up in the book actually was this Uh, complex topic of uh, what's known as p-hacking. And uh, I've had an interest for a while in this issue of the replication crisis and trying to understand it. And I I think there should be more discussion of it in a way that doesn't, you know, uh, that doesn't paint everything as, oh, you have to be anti-science because of the replication crisis. So I want people to actually understand what p-hacking and things like the replication crisis are. So maybe you can help in explaining that for my audience.
1: I'd be happy to. It's a very... It's simultaneously a simple and complicated topic. So let let me talk about what a p-value is, first of all. So, you know, one of the, um, as I said earlier, one of the uh, scientific methodology evolves over time to have um, mechanisms to remedy errors as we become aware of them. And so only in the past you know, few hundred years has statistics come to understand the likelihood of chance effects. So let's say that I have a new drug that I think is going to cure a disease. And so I take a thousand people with the disease and give them the drug and a thousand people who don't who, who, uh, who have the disease and I give them a placebo and it's, it's a blinded trial. So neither the doctors nor the patients know who's getting what. So we try to get rid of uh, certain types of bias. And at the end of the day, the patients getting the drug do better. Than the patient's getting the placebo. That seems to indicate that the drug has a beneficial effect, but you can't, not yet. You have to say, hang on a second. For any given disease, some people are gonna do better than others, right? This is just, I mean, just normal distribution of variability. What are the odds that the people that were just gonna happen to get better anyway wound up in the group getting the drug disproportionately by mistake compared to the the group getting the placebo. And that's called a type one error. And a p-value is a measure that helps us understand how likely it is that there's a type one error. It's, It's actual statistical definition is a bit more complicated than that, but basically if we assume the drug has no effect at all, what is the likelihood based upon the size of our study and the distribution of the disease that we're gonna get a false positive there? right? And currently, and and people debate whether this is appropriate, a p-value of 0.05 is the cutoff for something being real or significant. And a p-value of 0.05 means we'll make an error one out of every 20 times we run a study. One out of every 20 times, uh, actually, that's the upper limit of the error, I should say. One out of every 20 times we test a drug, we'll think it works when it doesn't. You say, well, why would you settle for that? <laughs> Wouldn't it be better if only one in a thousand, if only one in a hundred and thousand? Well, you know, doing research consumes massive resources, and there's human ethics involved, and you have to draw the line somewhere. Now, the fact that it's agreed upon and arbitrary doesn't make it capricious. It it is set, and it really protects us from things like moving the goalpost fallacy, right? Where it, well, it looks like it works, so I'm gonna, yeah, I'm just gonna say it does, even though it doesn't. But Papers in scientific journals, which, by the way, are, are peer reviewed, right? So in other words, you one of the metrics of scientific validity is that people unknown to you, by unknown, I mean not collaborating with you, evaluate your work, experts in the field other than you, and they decide whether it gets published or not, and you do the same thing for their work. So you can't just throw something up in a journal. It's not just the editor decides it should be published. It goes through a vetting process. And one of the criteria is having a p-value, less than 0.05, therefore statistically significant. Now, I'm not saying that studies that are not statistically significant can't get published. They can, especially if they're testing something super important, but there is a big preference towards publishing significant effects. It's called the publication bias. And therefore what happens is, people are highly incentivized to have studies with low P values because you know, it's very competitive, this career path. If you don't publish and, and you, you can't get grants, which means you can't do more research, which means you lose your career, right? And, and, and by the way, there's other more honorable you know, motivating factors besides that. So what happens is people will play with the data. And, and I don't mean that to mean lie or manipulate. They will say, well maybe we should split the data into male versus female. Maybe there's a different differential effect there. Or maybe these three patients from this one group, maybe we need to exclude them from the study because they were taking some herbal supplement we didn't know about. Maybe that had an effect. Now, now let me point out to you, there are legitimate reasons for doing this. right? Sometimes you, you have to exclude data. Sometimes you have to, to split into different groups. But if you allow people too many degrees of freedom in doing that, they can basically kind of play with the conditions until the p-value drops below 0.05 and publish that. Now, uh, it is problematic in, a, in many ways. It, it, it's actually, in some ways, it's kind of a good thing because you're looking for other stuff you might not want to notice, right? Like, for instance, if you were trying to uh, get a drug that, um, that treated chronic joint pain and it didn't work very well, but it just turns out that all the people in that group who had cancer were suddenly cured, you wouldn't want to ignore that. Right? But what happens, the more things you look at, the less stringent the p-value test becomes. And so the problem is not that people are looking at multiple things, but they're using a statistical test designed only to ask a simple question and they're broadening it. And so what this does is it makes the effective p-value of published studies, when they say it's 0.05, it's, it's much um, higher than that. By some estimations, you know, half of all studies would be, would be an error. Now this changes wildly across different fields, basic science versus clinical trials, you know, all over the place. But that that in a nutshell is is p hacking. Now sometimes it's intentional, right? Scientists are people, and there's all kinds of people, but it can happen quite inadvertently, and it leads to what you refer to the reproducibility crisis, where far too few published papers, when you repeat them, do you get the same effect? Which means either they were a mistake in the first place, or there's some critical component you don 't know about that you're you 're not doing over, but it it undermines the frequency I should say it increases the frequency with which errors are made
0: do you, do you happen to have a few extra minutes? I just wanted to ask uh, two more questions absolutely okay so the, the the first one, and this just had popped into my head uh, because you had mentioned uh, being frustrated, uh, maybe reading a paper and seeing how it reported on science at times and I, I think that 's a real issue we face is um, Just science journalism and how journalism deals with certain topics. So, for instance, uh, you know, someone was asking me what I thought about uh, this this book from the '90s that caused a big uproar. It was called the Bell Curve, this race and IQ book. And I said, well, you know, if you if you were to look at those studies that they did with the twins to bolster that argument, uh, those twins like were separated, but they weren't separated into like completely different cultures. They were often separated, like very close to each other like within you know a block from each other. so I'm not sure that that study disproves uh, you know nurture over nature you know it doesn't it doesn't necessarily prove what people think it does and yet I don't think all the coverage of it necessarily uh, pointed that out. So sometimes I think there's these issues um, when it comes to journalism around uh, data and, and scientific uh, subjects where, Maybe journalists aren't necessarily equipped uh, to know what to point out as being, you know, potentially wrong or uh, not useful. Um.
1: I, yeah. I, I. would. I would say not only are journalists not equipped, but um. Reader, readers, consumers of the news, don't necessarily want the full analysis. I'm not saying that they're they're not um able to comprehend it, but it, it is complex. We live in a time of sound bites. We live in a time of small little packets of information. You know, science is sometimes represented in school when you're a kid as, well, everybody thought the sun ran around the earth, and then Galileo saw that, you know, Venus had phases and he demonstrated that it was the other way around and oh my god he was brilliant and everyone agreed and suddenly it became clear and everyone changed their minds and that by the by the way it's funny because the biggest argument against Galileo was that there was no paralactic shift which is the name of your (laughs) name of your your podcast But, but but that's not how science works there is people will debate an issue and even evidence comes out and then more uh, it, it weighs towards one idea more than another, right? So when, when the CERN particle collider was collecting massive amounts of data and they found a signal that would have been what you would predict just in case the Higgs boson was real, right? They didn't say that. They didn't say, hey, we found something consistent with the Higgs boson being real. It supports the idea, they said, Higgs boson discovered, exclamation point, quotes, God particle, we found it, right? So, so this is part of the problem I was talking about earlier on this hyperbole around certainty. It is, it is problematic. And at the same time, if you were to unpack the nuances of every study, you'd be spending a career doing just that, which, you know, some of us do. So I don't know, it's it's a real tough thing. You know, it's the same thing is like in a, um, a presidential debate, people ask these very complicated questions, right? How do you feel about the blah? And the guy's got a couple sentences to answer instead of talking by guy. By the way, I'm from Chicago. So to me, guy's a gender neutral term. The person has a, a couple sentences to answer. And the same thing true in science. So I, I agree with what you're saying, but at the same time, unless you're going to have a, you know, an opus magnum on every issue, unless you're gonna. How do you how do you deal with that? And I think that the the lesson here is that journalists about science should should point out that this is evidence to support this idea, and it's imperfect evidence, and here's why.
0: Yeah, and I, I, I just to drive home the point. It, it was interesting that you mentioned how we're taught about science because in some ways I think we're taught, you know, oh Galileo discovered this, and then you know uh, it, it's almost like we're taught that it's this thing that that is always progressing. Whereas I, I see science as being a lot about debate. And sometimes we'll have a study that people believe uh, says one thing and then that study won't replicate or there will be an issue with the study that we'll find out later and we'll say, oh, you know, this study was wrong. It's not like we, it's not like science is is a process that's moving towards something. It's it's something that we're we're constantly coming to new conclusions, I guess. And sometimes we're throwing out old conclusions.
1: Well, you, you've stepped into a in a into a massive debate around postmodernist paradigms and whether or not science makes progress or it just shifts its point of view depending on how different generations evolve their thinking. But I think that the the, the point that that you're making, and it's a very important point, is that science is iterative, it's corrigible. And what's very special about science is it's self-correcting, right? If science makes an error or has an idea that doesn't really fit nature over time, as people keep playing with it, that will be figured out and it will be corrected. You know, sometimes it's funny what it, what appears to be science's greatest weakness is actually its greatest strength. There are a lot of systems of belief out there that can easily explain everything very easily. Um, Now, by the way, they can't predict anything. (laughs) They can't control nature in any way, but they can explain everything. Science always has holes, always has problems. And you hear a lot of people basically saying, well, wait a minute, I have two systems of belief here. One explains everything. The other one's got holes in it and it's unsure. Why would I go with the one that has holes in it and it's unsure? And the reason is that the, the fruits of that science, the fruits of that approach are so obviously clear. But but the fact that science may help us understand and manipulate experience is a separate issue of are the unseen causes of experience that science speculates actually there are they actually real? And how does it change when you, you, you look at it from one angle versus another? And the truth of the matter is, there are yes, there are things that there are absolute scientific consensus on. But a lot of the time, you know, something new comes along and there is debate. And by the way, that's a good thing because, but because the difference here is that the fra- you go back to authority. The revelation of modern science is that observation is the adjudicator of disagreement right? The phrase, because I said so, has no place in science. It is used from time to time, regrettably, but ultimately it has no place in science. If if, if your experience is what ultimately determines it, that is a, a massive shift.
0: And the, the very last thing I wanted to cover here was um you, you have a whole section on uh, new age and alternative beliefs. And I, I would put religion like s- sort of on there somewhere. And I, I think it's interesting because I've known people, I, I myself would say that my outlook is pretty um grounded in, in sort of materialism. Um, so I've had people say to me, Oh, well, you must hate religion. Uh, and I'm like, not not really. I think, you know, historically, you know, churches and things like that have probably provided people with a sense of community, even if I don't believe in, you know, uh, you know, supernatural entities. Maybe it served a material purpose for people. Um, and maybe there's purposes for new age beliefs. You know, I used to Mock people who are into astrology, but you know, now I see guys that will mock a girl for astrology, and that girl will know, hey, this dude is a <laughs> uh, jerk. I'm not going to date him. <laughs> so maybe, maybe, maybe there's a function to people believing these things. Maybe it's a way to ferret things out or to help them understand the world in a personal way. Uh, so maybe you could talk a little bit about, th- about uh, that section on New Age and, and sort of religious beliefs, maybe the, the pros and cons of them.
1: Oh, well, that's another hour conversation, but I'm happy to reflect upon it a little bit. I, the, first of all, I'm, I, I want to acknowledge that people who are advocates of, of, of New Age beliefs, belief systems don't like the term New Age, but there's no preferred term. I'm very dedicated to referring people the way they, they like, and I don't want that to carry with it some kind of uh, pejorative. Religion is also a complicated topic uh, depending upon how you define it. And I think that I, for these purposes, I'm mean, just going to focus on New Age phenomenon. And, and the interesting thing here is that I made a comment just a few minutes ago that science is based on experience and evidence. Well, you know what? New Age beliefs are also based on experience and also based upon evidence. You know, people are not, are not dumb. If you believe that crystals are curative... The reason you believe that is because you know someone who was really sick, who tried crystal therapy, and they were cured. And that is a perfectly good basis for a belief at first. The difference, right, between the science and the new age is that the new age would stop there and say, look at all these people who were cured, crystals work. Science would say, hold on, the question, this is back to the fraction, the question is not do some people who are sick use crystals and get better? The question is, do people who use, who are sick and use crystals get better at a greater rate than people get better on their own? And if the answer to that question is no, then if crystals work, there is no evidence of it, right? And so what happens is that people who, who notice things, who notice trends, who form beliefs, and hold on to those beliefs very tightly and practice those beliefs. Um, When scientists come along and say, hey, we wanna test them by this method, we wanna do a randomized trial, and they do it and they find no effect, often the new age response is, well, the negative energy of your skepticism destroyed the effect. So it works when we do it on our own, but not when you're studying us. Now, that's something that science-minded people like to mock but i do need to point out there's nothing logically impossible about that right just in case that happened to be the case then that could be a true statement but it makes the entity unstudiable by science and probably i would say probably not true and these are not benign issues right people lose their fortunes they they, they lose their lives uh to new age claims that lead them in uh directions unsupported by evidence or even by supported by evidence to the contrary. Now, now let me take a step back and say, spirituality does a lot of good for a lot of people. Right. And, um, you know, the, the romantic, uh, by romantic, I'm speaking, you know, the romantic movement response to science is that, oh, this newfangled science may give you light bulbs and airplanes, but it's not going to make you happy. I guarantee you as a professional scientist, that is true. But there's a very diff- big difference between believing in a system because of how it makes you feel spiritually or about the world and making specific knowledge claims about natural phenomenon this cures that disease. This can predict the future, right? I can read your mind. Cold reading and fortune telling, you know, when someone goes to a fortune teller, they usually uh, get a lot of really good evidence that the fortune teller can read their mind before they believe them. So can I do a, a little experiment with you? Uh, sure. All right. So I'm, I'm going to say, you know, looking at you and I can see an aura, around your body right now and I'm reading it cause it's moving a little bit more over your left ear than your right. I'm sensing a person in your life, maybe from your past, but probably present. And their name, I'm, I'm, what I'm seeing is a J.
0: Yes, I'm yeah, okay. good at cold reading.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm seeing a J. And this is a person who you care a lot about, but something has happened uh where that you have a regret about with this person yes yes yeah okay and so that's so all right so what am i so what am i doing here and by the way we, we could go on all day and, and drill down now let me let me give you an example here and this gets back to the fraction issue so um what i was going to do is say to you is that uh their name begins with a j or an m or an s or a d and i was going to wait for you to say yes now in in, in the western world if you speak english uh, 40% of names begin with a J, an M or an S or a D, 40%. Now, hold on here. So, and if you have um, just 11 people in your past, actually make it 40. If there are 40 people who, you know, right. 40 people who, who you know or have known who are important to you, I will, I will fail to get a hit only one out of every 748 million times I ask the question. OK, and I didn't ask you who Jay was, but if you said they were a parent, I know based upon your age that they're probably getting older and, you know, and, and, and basically I said to you, you care about them, but you have some regrets. Well, who doesn't have some regrets around someone? Right. And so basically what happens is that um, fortune tellers will approach people and ask them a series of questions where it makes it look like they really know something that they could not know if they weren't clairvoyant. Right. The person being read is not dumb. They are being presented with evidence that, that a reasonable per person would believe unless they understood that the way that the questions are being asked, you are more likely to win the Powerball lottery than it is for that person not to get correct hits.
0: It's almost like the, um, it's sort of like pattern recognition in a way you know, like, oh, the the fortune teller said this and then they got that right. So they they get another thing right and you start believing more and more because you're noticing a pattern, yeah. It's the
1: confirmation bias at work too because you notice when they get a hit, right? You ignore when they get a miss. You're noticing the top of the fraction and not the bottom. And then you twist, you start to twist it, right? So they'll say something to you like, oh, you had a father who died of heart disease. And you'll say, no, but my uncle Bob, he was like a father to me. And when my aunt died, he just lost the will to live, and he died too of a, basically of a broken heart, which is kind of like heart disease. So when you say my father died of heart disease, that's what you're seeing. Well, hold on, hold on a second. You've just expanded the denominator of the fraction, right? Massively. So you're you're guarant- you're working with them. You're guaranteeing it. And I'm not trying to pick on um, fortune tellers. Actually, they they may not, you know there was a there is a passage in the book. There's this wonderful woman named um, um, Carla McLaren who was a New Age guru who ultimately realized that she was cold that she was was cold reading people as an instinct without knowing she was doing it and she wrote this essay about how i i never meant to fool people this is something that i kind of picked up intuitively that i thought i could really do and and so it's you know just because something's happening doesn't mean that these people that the the practitioners are charlatans some of them Regrettably, are, um, but this is something humans do. Like you said, it's a pattern recognition thing, and we and we feed off each other, and we do it. And you know th- that's okay if um, it's a form of entertainment. But if you quit your job, divorce your wife, you know, and, and go somewhere and start, you know, getting coffee enemas for your health based upon something that someone said to you that you were convinced they knew what they were talking about because they could guess the name of your sick dad and tell you you were worried about them. That's probably not a good thing.
0: Well, I think we'll have to wrap it up on, on that note. And I just want to say, I hope, uh, I hope when I was, with what I was saying about religion and New Age beliefs, I wasn't saying, you know, oh, these things are just perfectly harmless. I, I think that there may be, you know, social functions to why people believe in certain uh, spiritual practices. Uh, but I also think it gets dangerous when you have, you know, people selling you know, like that company Goop was selling stuff that hurt people. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. that's where, it. you know, all these things get really tricky in a lot of ways because I want to be fair-minded, but then you see stuff like that and you're like, whoa.
1: Well, I'm trying to be very careful here, right? Because there, there, there it, all things are a range of, of things. And, and, And I think that also, I don't think it's helpful for people of different beliefs to call each other stupid. That's really one of the main points of the book, that what's helpful is to have a reflective discussion about why we believe certain things. And in order to do that, we need to understand how our minds, which regrettably all of us have to suffer with, work. And true, humans are different. Not every mind works identically. But there are themes and trends to how human cognition works, and it goes across anthropological boundaries. And a lot of the points of the book is these, the cognitive psychologists in the past 50 years have done a really amazing job of figuring out what these trends are. Think about the difficulty of the task of trying to figure out the defects of the human brain using a human brain. By the way, I am not a cognitive psychologist. I am just talking about how much I admire them. And so that's the type of thing that I think would be very helpful to us as people, as a society, if we wrapped our heads around in a way that we could kind of unpack why different people see the world differently.
0: Well, I wanna thank you, James C. Zimring, for coming on Parallax Views. And I encourage everyone to purchase the book, Partial Truths, How Fractions Distort Our Thinking. We're a big fan here of independent bookstores. So please, anyone who wants to get this book, find it at your local independent bookstore or order it there. And uh, thank you again, James.
1: Hey, it's really been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
0: Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with James C. Zimmering, author of Partial Truths, How Fractions Distort Our Thinking. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. I know I've been a little bit less productive lately uh, with shows. Uh, It's very hard doing three shows a week, and I know some listeners can't keep up with those three shows so I considered slowing down production uh, for the summer months. Also, uh, for those of you that support me on Patreon, I should be releasing a new Patreon-exclusive two-and-a-half-hour episode with friend of the show, C. Derek Varn, within the next day or so. I'm sorry it's only getting out there so late in the month, but i was out of town for about a week last week which was why there was no new content released on either the patreon or the main feed i thought i'd be able to do that but uh, other things got in the way in any case uh, the new episode patreon exclusive parallax views barn vlog crossover will be available within the next day or so at patreon.com slash parallax views one more time that's patreon.com slash parallax views it is you the listener that makes this show possible and with that being said until next time you've been listening to parallax views with jay views to parallax jay with J. <laughs> The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit it. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. Right? So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no,
1: basically,
0: basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom.